Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We often hear about crime stories in the early stages of an investigation, when they're shrouded in mystery, and then again when they slowly unravel years later in a courtroom. But what happens when we examine these cases from crime to court case? Would we potentially see a larger issue at hand? And would it cause us to remember the victims, maybe in a different way? Working as a criminal justice reporter in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada for eight years, I've covered many cases involving female homicide victims. Saskatchewan had the highest rate of intimate partner violence and domestic violence in Canada in 2018, according to Stats Canada. The percentage of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in our province is also one of the highest in Canada. And the rate of femicide, the killing of women and girls primarily but not exclusively by men, exceeds the national average. This podcast series details the stories of four women, their lives, deaths, and the criminal cases that followed, in hopes of ensuring they are never forgotten. Uh, he talked about the murder of Miss King with the same tone of voice that he would talk about going hunting in that same area. The target is told by the crime boss that uh, the crime boss knows that the target was involved in an unsolved crime. And if the target details the crime for the boss, the boss will make the charges go away. He talked about how he had left the garage door or the shed door half open. He described the clothing that Carol was wearing that night, all of which the argument is, how would he know that unless he was there at the time? Last episode, we told you how Carol King went missing from her property near Herschel, Saskatchewan on the day she planned to file a criminal harassment complaint. Days later, an image of her PT cruiser submerged in a slough was circulated to news outlets across the country. A few weeks after that, Carol's remains were found on an abandoned farmyard not far from her property. It all happened in the span of a month. Carol's ex, David Casey, became a person of interest. But David had an alibi, and there wasn't enough evidence to lay charges. So while these events took place in a pretty short amount of time, Carol's case went cold for five years. This episode details the undercover RCMP investigation that broke the case wide open. I'm Bree McAdam, criminal justice reporter with the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, and you're listening to She's Gone, stories of female homicide victims in Saskatchewan from crime to court case. My producer, Ashley Trask, joins me for episode three, part two of the disappearance and death of Carol King, a story I covered from the very beginning back in 2011. The operation is commonly referred to as a Mr. Big Sting. 
And the major crime technique is often used in cold cases, where police have a strong suspect, but all other investigative avenues haven't produced sufficient evidence to lay charges. Mr. Big refers to the fictitious crime boss at the center of this sting, where police officers are simultaneously investigators and actors. They have to pretend to recruit their suspects into low-level crime rings of which they supposedly belong. There are several meetings, referred to as scenarios, that work on building trust between the undercover officers and the suspect. Many of these meetings are secretly recorded. The suspect is initially hired for odd jobs, which become increasingly lucrative until they are eventually offered full-time employment. Here's the catch. The suspect is told that in order to become a member, they have to come clean about any past behavior that could bring unwanted attention to the organization. Why would this take five years? In this case, the investigation only took five months, but there's obviously a lot of planning and preparation that has to happen beforehand. Police officers always say that the objective is to find the truth. If the person hasn't done anything criminal, the belief is they won't have anything to confess. But there's been a lot of controversy over this investigative technique, including criticism that it can elicit false confessions. We'll get back to this a bit later. So five years after Carol King's body is found on an isolated abandoned farmyard near Herschel, the RCMP puts its Mr. Big Sting into motion. Their target is Carol's ex, David Casey. In February 2016, undercover officers officially meet David and his wife, who are now living in Alberta, at an Edmonton Oilers game. Police orchestrated this fake contest, pretending that David won a free VIP package. Through this meeting, the officers start chatting with David and eventually ask him to do some simple jobs, like building boxes. And it's perfect work, because David's a construction guy. He's worked on houses, he fixes lawnmowers, so police are playing right into his wheelhouse. As they get more and more comfortable with each other, David's tasks become increasingly more illegal. Police are dangling a line, and David is biting. So where do police go from here? Okay, it would take hours to tell you about all the different scenarios over the five months, but it's all a slow build to test David's dedication and to see if he wants to be a full-fledged member of this fake group. David eventually tells the officers about Carol King. He says they bought a home together and that although it was in her name, he had paid half. Now remember, Carol's sister, Brenda, said Carol wanted to sell the house and move back east. David tells the officers that she was mad about him going back to his wife. After putting a lien on the house, David says, quote, hell broke loose. He believed Carol was going to make a false sexual assault complaint against him so that he would go to jail and she would get the house. On June 8th, 2016, David made his first recorded statement about killing Carol. 
he said he planned the entire thing. He went into greater detail about a week later. The following excerpt is taken from that recording on June 15, 2016, while David and one of the officers were in Lethbridge, Alberta. This is a reenactment, and just be advised, it does contain graphic language. I go there, park my truck, fucking get to her place, snuck up to her site. She came out, I grabbed her, dumped her on the ground, fucking tied her up, fucking threw her in the back of her own rig, drove ten miles away or whatever, fucking done her in, drug her out of the fucking car, dumped her in the bush, took the fucking PT cruiser, drove it over to a dugout about five miles away from there, cleaned it as best I could, and started it and threw it in gear and fucking drove it, bailed out of the fucking door and let her go into the dugout. David goes on to describe how he walked back to his truck, removed his clothes, changed, and then zigzagged down country roads so no one could see him until he found a different place to burn his clothes. Then he said he drove back to Alberta. During the course of the investigation, David would tell this same story to three different officers during five separate conversations. But there was one glaring inconsistency. In his initial version of the story, David said he strangled Carol. But he later says that was a lie. This is what David told the undercover officers based on the recordings. I was fucking paranoid as fuck that I was getting set up. Everything is true about the story, except how I did her in. That's the only thing that's not right. Everything else is 100% accurate. I didn't choke her out. I stabbed her. That's the only thing. Swear to God. David also said he threw the knife into a grain field. That doesn't really make sense. Why would he lie about how he killed her and then tell police that he lied? David said he panicked when another member of the crime group asked him about the killing. He said it caught him off guard. And the reason he revealed his lie is because police were actually confronting him about lying. They thought David was lying about how he put Carol's car into the slough, but David insisted the only lie he told them had to do with the murder method. But we will never know for sure how Carol died. An autopsy could not determine her cause of death, because of predation and decomposition. David even took two of the undercover officers on a road trip to reenact the day he said he abducted and killed Carol. He showed them all the locations, where he drove Carol's car into the slough, where he left her body, and where he threw the knife, which in the end was never located. Does he ever seem to feel bad about what he's describing? Or what's his tone like when he's telling this to the undercover officers? At one point in the recordings, he does talk about feeling bad and crying after he killed Carol, and then mentions that it wasn't what he wanted to do, but he felt like he had no other choice. And that's about the extent of any outward remorse. Five months later, on July 19th, 2016, David Casey is officially charged with first-degree murder. David pleads not guilty to the murder charge, as well as a charge of offering an indignity to human remains, which basically means moving a body after death. His trial takes place in Saskatoon Court of Queen's Bench two years later in the summer of 2018. David chose to be tried by a judge alone, 
Anyone in Canada who's charged with an indictable or serious offense can choose to be tried by a judge and jury or a judge. But before the official trial can begin, there is a special hearing to determine whether all those confessions David gave to police can be allowed as evidence. This process was mandated by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2014. And it requires the Crown to prove two things. First, that David's statements didn't arise from a police abuse of power, which in this case lawyers agreed wasn't an issue. And second, that the statements were more likely reliable than they were not reliable. This required corroborative evidence, proof that the stuff David was telling police had an element of truth. Uh, my name is Matthew Miaska, M-A-T-T-H-E-W. Last name is M-I-A-Z-G-A. And I'm a Crown Prosecutor employed by the Saskatchewan Ministry of Justice. And I was the prosecutor on the case against Mr. Casey. He talked about how he had left the garage door or the shed door half open, which in fact was the case. And again, there is no way in, in my view that anybody uh, would have known that other than somebody who was there at the time uh, Carol was abducted. He described the clothing that Carol was wearing that night and that in a general way matched up what in fact was found at the uh, location of her body. For example, she was wearing a pink uh, top, which was badly uh, stained, but police investigated, found out this top came from Old Navy and got a picture of the color of it, and that matched uh, the pink color he had described as being a pink tank top or a light flimsy top, all of which the argument is, how would he know that unless he was there at the time? Matthew has worked on several high-profile cases in Saskatoon throughout his career, including Mr. Big Stings. He says in this case, the most powerful evidence at David's trial was the number of confessions. Recordings differed in, in quality, but in particular, there was a recording that also had a videotape associated with it. And it was a very uh, good quality recording where he clearly described in detail what happened. He did so in the most casual fashion. Uh, he talked about the murder of Miss King with the same tone of voice that he would talk about going hunting in that same area. And then secondly, uh, there was a recording made uh, a couple of weeks uh, later wherein he was confronted with this uh, confusion as to what her cause of death was. And that was a very good quality recording. And again, Mr. Casey was very passionate in that recording about how he was telling the truth. The officer sort of called him out and suggested he was lying and making this up. And I think anyone who listened to that could hear the passion in his voice as to how he was trying to convince this officer that indeed he was telling the truth. I'm struggling to understand this false confession thing. Why would someone confess to a crime they didn't commit? Well, some defense lawyers will argue that in Mr. Big Stings, suspects are willing to say whatever it takes to get into the crime ring, especially when money is involved. I'm Kevin Hill, K-E-V-I-N-H-I-L-L. -L. I'm a criminal defense attorney uh, operating out of Saskatoon, throughout the province of Saskatchewan, typically. And um, I represented David Casey at his trial. The target is uh, typically baited with full membership in the organization with the lure of an upcoming very large payday. The target is told by the crime boss 
that uh, the crime boss knows that the target was involved in an unsolved crime. And if the target details the crime for the boss, the boss will make the charges go away. Uh, but if the target disappoints, he will lose everything gained from the group. And that's exactly what Hill argued at trial. David was unemployed, and Hill said he told police a story because he needed work. It was a constant running theme throughout his conversations with the undercover operators that he was struggling financially. He was the main breadwinner of his family, his wife, his children, and uh, he was looking for work and needed full-time work, needed full-time money, and would specify what kinds of levels of dollars he needed on a weekly and ongoing basis to be able to finance his family. So he was actively seeking full-time work of one form or format throughout this operation. What do you say to people who would, would have trouble grasping the fact that somebody would choose to confess to killing somebody so that they could get a job? It's an alien concept for most people to be in this kind of scenario. But I, I think it has to be assessed from the perspective of somebody who um, uh, doesn't understand that this alternate reality is created by multiple people surrounding this individual. And they know a great deal more about this individual than the individual knows about them. So they know the type of person Mr. Casey is in his current issues in terms of his living situation. So they know what he needs. I think the fundamental problem and what can lead to false confessions is that these operations groom vulnerable people and the operations format the information it receives effectively, potentially tainting it, generating a false confession because that false confession is in the target's best financial interest to portray themselves as guilty. Okay, just a quick side tangent. Hill said they know the type of person Mr. Casey is. What did you find out about David? Like Carol, David had also moved out west from the Maritimes, and he was a handyman who worked for himself, moving to Herschel when his steel framing business went belly up. David could fix almost anything with a motor. He wasn't afraid to swear and wore his gray hair in a signature ponytail. After hearing the Mr. Big evidence, it became apparent that David really likes to talk. He was very outgoing and had many interests, and at times, even seemed like a bit of a blowhard. And the undercover police officers knew all these things about David. As Hill mentioned, they'd been studying and surveying him leading up to the sting. So Justice Richard Danilik hears all this evidence during week-long voir dires over a four-month period. And he decides that the evidence meets the required reliability threshold and allows the Mr. Big Sting as evidence at trial. And that evidence becomes the bulk of the trial. But there were other witnesses who testified. Remember those lurking men Carol told her sister about? Yes, okay, I've been wondering about this. Well, one of them testified that David paid him $100 to go onto Carol's property and scare her. He said he did it two nights in a row, about two or three days before Carol's abduction. 
The plan, according to him and according to what David told undercover police, so corroboration, was that David would be in Alberta when it happened and this would make it look like someone else was after Carol. The Crown argued he was creating an alibi. Carol's sister Brenda also testified via video link from her home in Nova Scotia about the harassment in the days leading up to Carol's disappearance. And the trial heard from several RCMP officers. They testified about putting a GPS tracking device on David's truck. The tracker showed the truck had passed all the sites, the body site, the slough, the place where David said he burned his clothes, many times before Carol's remains were found. The truck had only stopped once at the body site. After Carol's body was found, it was tracked there seven times. Okay, but how does that prove anything? We don't know for sure who was driving. That's true, but just as Danilux said, it's pretty hard to believe that this was all a coincidence because those were the same places that David later took the undercover police officers to. And at the time of the tracking, most of those locations had not been made public. That's what police are looking for, information that only the killer could know. There was another interesting thing that came out during the trial. In part one of this episode, we talked about a cryptic memorial that suddenly appeared on the farmyard where Carol's body was found. At the time, and for years later, nobody knew where it came from. So at trial, it was revealed that RCMP were the ones behind it. RCMP actually put a camera inside the memorial so they could see every person who came out to the spot, including me. But Matthew says nothing of any evidentiary value ever came of it. The defense called one witness to the stand, a woman who worked at the motel in Olds where David stayed during his work trip. She said she saw David walk by the front desk around 5 p.m. on August 6, 2011. If this were true, David couldn't have been in Herschel abducting and killing Carol. But in cross-examination, she was all kinds of confused, saying she didn't even know for sure if that was the right date. In their closing arguments, both Matthew Miazga and Kevin Hill focused on a specific aspect of the case, the timeline. Remember when David claimed he was working in Olds the day Carol disappeared? Well, the Crown argued David was in Hannah, Alberta around noon that day, based on a highway speeding ticket he got, arrived in Herschel before Carol's 5 p.m. appointment, and had enough time to do the crime and make it back to Olds by 9 p.m. How do we know he was back by 9 p.m.? When David was initially being questioned by police, he gave them a camera as part of his alibi. On it was a picture of a storm that he had taken near Olds the night of Carol's disappearance. Matthew says the photo had a timestamp that actually helped police determine when David would have returned from Herschel, thus creating a timeline. But Hill argued the timeline was impossible, that there was no way David could have been in Herschel long enough to kill Carol, get rid of all the evidence, and still make the three-and-a-half-hour trip back to Olds by 9 p.m. Matthew also argued that David's Mr. Big statements about killing Carol are true, and that they are corroborated by all the other evidence put before the court. He said it was first-degree murder for several reasons. The first reason was that it was planned and deliberate, in his statements, Mr. Casey made it very clear that this was planned out ahead of time. He drove from Alberta some 400 kilometers to Saskatchewan. He had 
parked his truck in an area uh, so that it would not be seen. Uh, he, he dumped the car in one place. He dumped her remains in another place. And all of these things he said he had thought out ahead of time. He also set up the false alibi in the days leading up to it with, that we've already discussed by having somebody else go to the house to scare her. And all of that made it very clear that this was a planned act. It may well have been motivated by passion because clearly the relationship between those two was uh, in a very bad place at that time. But what's important is that it was planned and deliberate. The second argument the Crown had is that this was a murder that took place during the course of a kidnapping or a forcible confinement, which automatically makes something first-degree murder. Mr. Casey's story was that he, in fact, did uh, kidnap uh, Ms. King from her residence and took her in her car to the location about six kilometers away where he killed her. That amounts to a kidnapping and or a forcible confinement and when a death results in the context of that crime it is by definition first degree murder. Hill said his client did not kill Carol King. There were way too many inconsistencies in David's statements, like when he initially lied about the murder method, that prove his statements were unreliable. In January 2019, Justice Danilik handed down his decision. It took place in one of the courthouse's largest courtrooms, which is usually used for big murder cases. Usually, there's this electric feeling in a courtroom just before a decision is given. It's hard to explain, but it's like everybody is kind of holding their breath. It's anticipation, and it is intense. But there wasn't really that atmosphere in this case, and it was kind of a shame because it is a big case. But there's two main reasons why I think this happened. First of all, there weren't many people in the courtroom. Carol wasn't from Saskatchewan, her family isn't from here, and she'd only lived in Herschel for about three years. Also, this was happening seven years after Carol's death. A lot of time had passed and the case hadn't been in the public eye for quite a while. That being said, a few reporters, a private investigator who had worked with the family, an RCMP investigator, and an elderly couple from Herschel just coming curious about the case, were in the courtroom when Justice Danilek gave his decision. He found David Casey guilty of first-degree murder and offering an indignity to human remains. Do we know what the smoking gun was? Did it end up being the undercover confessions? Danilik said the confessions were highly reliable because they create a timeline and a set of circumstances that matches the physical evidence. And there was a motive. He said the relationship was bad. David decided to kill Carol, and he put the plan in motion when he realized she was going to police. And earlier, Ash, you'd asked me about whether David seemed sad about what he did. Well, in his decision, Danilek touches on this, saying the matter-of-fact way that David discussed planning and killing Carol could only be described as chilling. David received the mandatory sentence for first-degree murder, life imprisonment, with no parole eligibility for 25 years. So did we ever hear from David during the trial? No, we didn't, because in the end, he did not testify, which is completely within his right. Uh, before he was sentenced, David was given an opportunity to address the court, but he told the judge that he had nothing to say. Matthew, the Crown Prosecutor, said David was calm throughout the entire trial. He had even gotten permission to sit beside his lawyer instead of in the prisoner's box. 
Matthew says something that struck him about the trial was the genuine relationship between David and the police officers, who, at one point in his life, David believed were his friends. In fact, during the trial, they would talk during adjournments as though they were friends, even though they're testifying on a first-degree murder trial against this man. I recall, and in fact, sometimes I was a little taken aback when a witness would, you know, during a German when we're waiting for the judge to come in, would engage in conversation with uh, Mr. Casey it, about how he's doing, about how his wife was. One thing in particular I remember is that he had given a gift of some golf clubs that were sort of antique golf clubs to one of the undercover operators because they all enjoyed golfing. And he wanted these back, Mr. Casey did. And so he discussed with these officers how he could get these golf clubs back because, of course, it was a sham and he thought they might have some value. And they eventually made arrangements for those to be returned and they were returned to him on the day he was found guilty. After the decision, Matthew talked to reporters outside court and said the following, quote, I think Brenda King is very relieved that there's somebody who's finally said now what she's always believed, which is that David Casey was responsible for her sister's death. When I reached out to Brenda to speak to me for this podcast, she respectfully said she didn't feel like she could. Now, it's important to end this by saying that David has appealed his murder conviction, citing six different grounds of appeal. And most of them revolve around those murder confessions, arguing they never should have been made admissible in the first place, and that without those confessions, the Crown would be back to square one, without a case. If David's appeal is successful, he's asking for a new trial. There are many organizations in Saskatchewan that provide services to victims of stalking, criminal harassment, and domestic violence. For more information, you can visit the Provincial Association of Transition Houses and Services of Saskatchewan, also known as PATHS, at pathssk.org. That's P-A-T-H-S-S-K dot org. And if you have any information on someone who is missing in Saskatchewan, you can always contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477. She's Gone is researched and written by me, Bree McAdam. Our producers are Ashley Trask and Matt Olson. Our theme music was created by Bryce Hall. And editorial assistance comes from our editor-in-chief here at the Star Phoenix, Heather Person. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. On our next episode... I think I realized a little later on that uh, he had witnessed a, a woman dying on that road. Something went very, very, very sour that night. <laughs>